It was a terrifying wake-up call in this Kitsilano apartment building. Saad Mustafa says he witnessed his neighbor allegedly turn on his Airbnb guests. It is horrifying. There was blood everywhere. Mustafa says he opened his door to a horrific scene in the hallway. She appeared to have a stab wound in the neck or neck area. It was covered with a white uh, long scarf or shawl. Um, and she was, uh, she was on the floor lying on her back and she was uh, bleeding uh, very, very badly. A teenager is facing multiple charges after a dramatic scene at a Metrotown Skytrain station Tuesday. Burnaby RCMP say they were yelling at the 17-year-old suspect to get down after he dropped a knife and reached for another. Moments before, police say he was being aggressive and threatening inside the mall. After tracking him to the SkyTrain station, police tried to tase the teen, but it didn't work. He then took off up the escalator and was arrested on the SkyTrain with three knives. The suspect has been charged with assault with a weapon and possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose. The fellow who lived across the hall from me went crazy last night, and he started stabbing with a big machete. Cecil Cochran has some two dozen staples in his head after a harrowing knife attack at his Vancouver rooming house. But he just went crazy. He said, "We want fire." What I heard was a pop. I heard a, like a, an explosion. And as he went in the hallway, and it smelled like gasoline. So he poured gasoline in his room and lit his room on fire. And he went out and started stabbing people. What would you do if you were attacked by someone wielding a knife? Good morning, it's John Jang in today for Mike Smith, and we get right into the action for this show today. With so many high-profile violent attacks all throughout Metro Vancouver this summer, it is important to remember that several of these incidents involve the use of a knife. And of course, all Canadians across the country absolutely shocked and horrified to learn of the unimaginable attacks in Saskatchewan just 11 days ago. Attacks that left 10 victims dead, an additional 18 people injured, and forcing families across Canada to start asking this question. What would you do if you were attacked by someone wielding a knife? Should you fight back? Should you run? Do you call for help? These attacks can happen so quickly that I think it's imperative that we all know what we're doing in the hopefully unlikely situation where we find ourselves in this situation. Helping to answer some of these questions today and more importantly, to help save lives, we are now joined by Jennifer Bages, a self-defense expert who is offering a knife defense class here in Vancouver this month. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Now, first of all, I understand you're currently in Vegas right now to do additional training and preparation, I would assume, for the class here in Vancouver. Can you give us a bit more details on what's going on in Vegas? Yeah, I'm here in Vegas for actually human weapon target-focused training Mm. with uh, an expert of all experts, uh, Tim Larkin. So the training that I'm doing here is enabling um, you to find a target on the body that's going to create the most debilitating injury. So one that is um, where you're going to want to inflict damage and uh, uh, cause the most um, debilitating injury so that you can get away free. It's it's something that uh, it's talking about asocial violence. So asocial violence is one where there's no de-escalation, there's no social skills uh, with the attacker, there's no de-escalation. All they want to do is they want to create harm and they Mm want to potentially kill you. So learning how to inflict damage and injury and having a result is the primary goal when you're dealing with this type of violence. So this will go hand in hand with um, some of the nice defense 
uh, awareness tactical drills that we do in class as well. But um, it's a supplement, basically. So it's just broadening my own horizon and expanding my own knowledge base as well, which I can then bring back and present and teach the community here in Vancouver. Right. And to go over your background just a little bit, you're a Krav Maga Force Training uh, Safety Officer, uh, a Federation of Israeli Martial Arts Black Belt, and you also train with the Vancouver Police Department. Needless to say, Jennifer, you are very highly qualified in the field of self-defense. So let me ask you here, uh, have you ever come in a situation where you were attacked by somebody with a knife? And and if so, how did you uh, defend yourself in that situation? I haven't personally been um, in a situation like that, but I do know of several people who have been um, personally. And so my whole goal of creating this class is just to provide a source of a tool of empowerment for people, um, giving them some education and a bit of a foundation and just leading them with some usable, actionable tools um, as soon as they leave. I think that is really important, just the education allowing them to uh, feel empowered, knowing what safety looks like, what are some safety tips. We talk about situational awareness. We can't talk about that enough because these mm-hmm. days everyone's got distractions. So I really hone in on what, how important that is. That is your priority because that is really 90% of your self-protection. So if you can pay attention to everything around you, you're able to uh, detect and you're able to avoid, and that is the key. You don't want to be in the fight, right? If you can avoid the situation and you choose safety, that is what you do. However, if that is, if you devoid a choice, then you need to try to de-escalate, whether it's through verbal communication. Uh, you got to trust your gut and your intuition because they, it's always, always right. And ultimately, if all else fails, you have to learn how to defend yourselves, and this is where the class to give you some tools and techniques mm-hmm. to enable you to um, to learn what, what and, and get a feel for what a knife feels like, what it looks like with a knife attack coming in. And we do great, um, a lot of good drills uh, and just, just some basic um, defensive tactics that will help them you know, learn and um, prepare. And I think it's important to, again, remind our listeners, like it's it's really not about combat. It's not about fighting because that is the last resort. The last, like, exactly. You, this is not a sport. This is about survival. This is about your life is on the line. Your priority is to get out. You don't want to stay in the fight. You don't want to do some sort of, you know, um, sport-related type of combination. You just want to attack the target that's going to create that injury because you need distraction. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to create that injury so that you can leave. You need to have a target that you know where you're going to focus and aim for, and that's the target that you want to strike so that it renders them helpless to run after you and you can get away and go home. That is your priority. In conversation with Jennifer Bages, a self-defense expert, uh, Jennifer, are, are you concerned yourself to see the amount of knife-related attacks we've seen, not just in Metro Vancouver, certainly there's been uh, quite a number of them throughout the summer, but all throughout the province and the rest of the country as well? Absolutely. Um, I think that there's, obviously there's a, a, a surge in mental health issues, um, and some of this is related to that. Uh, but nonetheless, it is my own duty um, as a civilian to be responsible for myself. And I think that everyone needs to take that ownership and empower themselves to learn how to stay safe at this time in our lives because violence is uh, it's not going away. No one is immune to violence. It can happen any time of day, any place. Um, so it's better to be prepared and have that skill set and know how to uh, avoid it again because uh, we can't stress that enough rather than, you know, just think that this is never going to happen to me, mm-hmm. right? This is usually the mindset of most 
uh, victims or targets. And no, no one ever thinks it's going to happen to them. But the statistics show that every person who's been in a situation, majority of them, I should say, um, knew that the, something was going to happen before it happened because they had that funny feeling. Uh, they just disregarded it. Uh, your knife defense class, it's being held in Vancouver on September 25th. Is it open for like all ages? For example, if you have kids going back to school right now, maybe as a parent, this might be something you're interested in doing. Absolutely. It's uh, for all ages, um, and we will cater it to age-specific as we need. Uh, it's going to be held at uh, InfoFit Educators um, at 1687 West Broadway um, on September 25th. I also have another uh, knife defense class at the Roundhouse on October 6th. So if anyone's interested, please go out and seek um, these two facilities and get your registration in. Uh, class sizes are limited, so the sooner the better. Jennifer, thanks so much for giving us some time and for doing the work that you do. Hopefully you are indeed helping to save lives out there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. appreciate your time, too. Have a great day. All right. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. Uh, John Jang here filling in. And we are exactly a month away from the civic elections coming up on Saturday, October 15th. How you vote will certainly come down to some key campaign promises and platforms such as action plans on affordability and housing. One such plan was shared earlier this week by uh, Mayor Kennedy Stewart and Forward Together Vancouver. Simply put, this is the most ambitious housing plan in the city's history. The plan here is to, uh, is to approve 220,000 units. Uh, we know that houses can't get built unless they're approved, and so that is the main job that we're doing at the city. Uh, by increasing approvals, we're enabling uh, the construction. Uh, with that in mind, we have an excellent debate panel for you here today. On behalf of Forward Together Vancouver, we are joined by Alvin Singh, a candidate for Vancouver City Council. Good morning, Alvin. Hey, John. How's it going? Doing very well. Uh, glad you could be here. And on behalf of Team for a Livable Vancouver is Bill Thielman, also candidate for Vancouver City Council. Good morning, Bill. Hi, John. All right, Alvin, I will start with you. I appreciate both you gentlemen coming here today. Uh, the housing plan, Alvin, that we just heard in this clip is a very ambitious one. The numbers just jump off the page. 220,000 mm-hmm. new homes over 10 years. My question to you, sir, what guarantee can Forward Together promise on this platform? As we've seen uh, many different affordable housing plans die on the floor of city council over the past four years. What makes this proposal any different? I'm I'm glad you brought that up. The thing that makes this different is that the mayor this time is running with a team of people, myself and others that are committed to building housing and treating the housing emergency the way it needs to be treated, with urgency. The last four years, we've seen a council that has said no to all sorts of housing. And the lead person who's been saying no is team mayoral candidate Colleen Hardwick. And now Bill wants to join her and, and say no some more. Bill, would you like to jump in on that? (laughs) <laughs> no kidding. Listen, Kennedy Stewart's entire housing plan is, is simply unbelievable. It's a dream come true for the major corporate developers that we're seeing on the front page of the papers today and yesterday are funding Kennedy Stewart and Alvin Singh and their whole Forward Together party. And uh, so this is absolutely impossible. What we're talking about, John, is 22,000 units a year. That's mm. unachievable. It's not needed because we have 100,000 units in the pipeline. And it has taken... Uh, the last year, we, uh, the Vancouver built about 9,000 units. So to, to think you can more than double it is just about impossible unless you just go willy-nilly and uh, without uh, proper planning and proper citizen consultant uh, consultations. How can you possibly build 22,000 every year? And they're not needed. Alvin, I'll let you offer a rebuttal here if you'd like. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we should talk to the folks that are in lineups for rental housing, competing with hundreds of other tenants or folks, young people that are trying to buy their first home and are outbid again and again and again and try to tell those folks that we don't need new housing. The truth is that we're in a housing crisis. Everybody knows it, except for Bill. And we need to build this housing. We've already doubled the housing that we've been uh, approving over the last 10 years. And we think we can go even further. We need to go further. The Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation has made it really clear in order to get back to an affordability level, we need to be building homes like we did in the post-war era. Hmm. And that would take us to these numbers. We know that we need to do this. Bill has a home. Colleen Hardwick has a home. A lot of people have a home. My parents have a home because of the amount of housing we were building during that time. We can get back there and we can give hope back to young people, to newcomers, to renters uh, that they belong in this city and they have a place here. Uh, Alvin, uh, really appreciate that. Uh, he is, of course, with uh, Forward Together Vancouver, also speaking with Bill Thielman on behalf of Team Vancouver. Bill, over to you. You've been on the station multiple times throughout the summer as one of the leading voices against the now-approved Broadway plan. That plan would have, would have included uh, 30,000 new homes for all different income levels. So why should renters and voters with affordability issues believe that you and Team Vancouver have their best interests in mind? Well, John, look at the last four years under Kennedy Stewart and Alvin Singh working as communication director in his office. We have had the highest, the most incredible skyrocketing rents and housing prices. Whatever Kennedy Stewart and Forward Together have been doing, it's clearly wrong. Uh, Alvin talks about building more houses. We're not building affordable housing. What he's proposing are high-rise concrete towers all over the city on the Broadway plan, the 500 blocks from 16th to 1st, <clears throat> from Clark Drive to uh, to Vine Street in Kitsilino, uh, there would be that's the biggest single area of affordable low-rise housing right now, the largest number in the whole city. And this Broadway plan that they've passed would allow the demolition, the demoviction of low-rise affordable housing to build concrete high-rises up to 40 stories tall near SkyTrain stations. That's not going to be affordable. That's not solu- uh, providing a solution to the problem we've got. They're building uh, all sorts of condos under this plan that most people can't possibly afford. Alvin, do you have majority, a response? Uh, the majority of the mayor's plan is actually rental housing, below market rental, co-op, social housing. We build a record number of that, but we need to keep going. Bill, I don't think he's heard about supply and demand. Prices are going up because we've never had this much demand for housing in our city's history. That's why tenants are lining up for hours. That's why young people are being outbid. We've got a 1% vacancy rate in the city. Every new rental that we build is being filled. That's why the mayor's housing plan is so ambitious. 220,000 new homes over 10 years is how we give hope back to young families. But let me just say this. I think Bill is extremely consistent. For him and Colleen Hardwick and team, we know exactly where they stand. They want neighborhoods to have a veto so that we don't build any new housing. Mayor Kennedy, Stewart and Ford together, we want to build housing, 220,000 new homes. But where we don't know is where ABC and Ken Sim stand. We don't know what their solutions are. Sometimes they vote for housing. Sometimes they don't vote for housing. I don't think we can trust a party that's so all over the map. Right. Well, unfortunately, Ken Sim's not part of this uh, debate panel this morning, Alvin, but I'll stay with you on that. Building. It's a key word. Uh, last uh, last year, the city of Vancouver approved the construction of 8,834 homes in 2021. That is data that your party, Forward Together, actually provided to the media. I'm wondering of the nearly 9,000 units, and this was something that Bill was alluding to earlier, how many of those approvals have actually been built? Do we have any concrete data on that? 
Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, under the mayor's leadership, we've built and filled 1,600 social housing units. That's a record. And we've built modular housing for folks to lift them off of streets and, and out of poverty and, and out of homelessness. And, and, and Alvin, right. don't get me we, wrong. We 1,600 is a, a great start. But if you're talking about 220,000 new units over 10 years, you're going to have to expedite that process in a big way. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And that's why the mayor's running with a team of folks who are committed to doing just that. Instead of folks that want to delay and, and say that we don't have a housing crisis and question people about whether or not we need uh, four floors or five floors, we need housing now. We need to approve it. We need to expedite it. We need to get it built. But we won't be able to do that if we elect a uh, team of people that don't even believe we're in a housing crisis. Bill, do you have a response? John, let's talk about some facts as opposed to some fiction here. In the, fa- in the past four years, the Kennedy-Stewart government has completed less than 1% of the housing it started. It's an average two years from rezoning to issuing a building permit under Kennedy-Stewart. There is no way that's going to work. Uh, Alvin mentioned the 1% vacancy rent. The rental protection plan says they're going to take people who might be demovicted, move them somewhere else in a 1% market, vacancy market, at the cost uh, to the developer, have them there for two, three, four, five years while their building's demolished, a new building, and then move them back to a new building with the same rent or lower. If you believe that, i got a bridge to sell you. Well, Bill, I'll stay with you here as well. Uh, back in July, the president of Team Vancouver resigned over concerns that your party was being seen as anti-development. If party leadership felt that way just two months ago, why should the voting public feel any differently one month from today? What we're uh, looking at is actually, and what we have done, unlike Kennedy Stewart and Alvin Singh, we don't take money from major corporate developers, and we refuse to do that. President of team at that time was not comfortable with the positions we were taking, and that's too bad for him, but we're not moving back on that one inch. We've got a situation where we've called for an investigation by Elections BC into Forward Together's fundraising list, which Alvin's name is on, it appears, uh, possibly on, maybe he'd like to answer if he is or is not the person named on that list, going to every major developer in Vancouver and asking them to collect massive tens of thousands of dollars, in some cases, of money, and that's just is not appropriate. We're, as a city council, the city council is the regulator for the development industry. It's probably the number one job at city council, and to get all your money from developers is this wrong. Bill, you did bring up what I think is clearly the big elephant in the room. Alvin, I will come to you here. Yesterday, a gentleman named Stanley Woodvine found a two-page spreadsheet in the 300 block of West Broadway. This sheet, this document, appears to be a list of donors and donations. Mr. Woodvine was actually a guest on the Jazz Johal show yesterday. I would like you to take a listen to this clip. And the names jumped right off the sheet at me. They were like developers, the names I recognized. Some of the amounts were quite high. This looks like some kind of political donation list. Alvin, can you confirm if this spreadsheet is a donor list for your party, Forward Together Vancouver? Yeah, I don't think it's any surprise that those names are familiar because we've already proactively disclosed those donors weeks ago, going back to 2018. We always follow election BC rules to the letter. In fact, we've gone above and beyond by proactively disclosing. No one else has come close to that level of transparency. Team refuses to disclose their donors. We don't know who's donating to Bill and to Colleen, and they refuse to let us know. Uh, Bill, like you said, you, your party has asked Elections BC to investigate this list. What is it about this list that you're not so uh, perhaps 100% about? 
Well, it has names like Francesco Aquilini with uh, a target or a number on there of $63,000, dollars $65,000. That's not possible mm. to raise legally uh, through one individual. So presumably, uh, a network of developers, if this is what Alvin's saying, he should say it more clearly, is a network of developers, the biggest developers, the Boses, uh, the Reliance uh, Properties, the Aquilinis, are they raising all your money for you and are they collecting it for you under the direction Absolutely of city not. staff like yeah. Neil Moncton and Alvin Singh? Yes or no? Absolutely not. We have people that have stepped up to support us. Many of them are reaching out to people they know. But the bottom we'll line the is Alvin that on the you list. and I both know, Bill, you and I both know that max donations are twelve fifty. The donations you're talking about is just a handful of examples. The average donation that Ford Together has collected is $175, including a very generous donation from yourself. Gentlemen, gentlemen, I, I think what we're talking about is crucially important right now. And Alvin, I just want to specify, can you confirm that donations have always been capped by individuals at 1250 Is that what you're saying? Because that's not what the spreadsheet appears to suggest. Absolutely. The Elections BC rules are very clear. The maximum donation is 12, uh, 1250 in this election cycle. It's very common in elections for folks to be like, hey, I want to support you and I'm going to go out and, and see if other people can support you. And, and that's what that list is all about. It's just folks going out and seeing how they can support our campaign. But really the reality is that uh, team and and uh, four together, we're going to be spending a fraction of what uh, Ken Sim and ABC are going to be outspending. If folks are worried about mm. uh, people buying an election, that's who they should be worried about. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. John Jang here filling in for Mike today. We have an excellent uh, housing uh, panel here, if you will, a debate panel. But these two gentlemen seem to be getting along just fine, if you ask me. It's Alvin Singh from Forward Together Vancouver, a candidate for city council, and Bill Thielman from Teen Vancouver, also a city council uh, candidate this year. Bill, I'll go to you here. We have just a few minutes here left. But on the notion of donor lists, Alvin brought this up before the break. Has Team Vancouver released their donor list? And if nope. not, do you plan to do so? Yes, we do plan to do so, and we'll do that in the next week or two when we've got, obviously, more fundraising has come in, so it makes more sense. But, you know, John, I've got to say, what's going on in the city? Again, a new story in the Daily Hive a couple of days ago, Reliance Properties proposed a 25-story rental building. Now they're saying it's going to go all condos. That's at Davie and Hornby Street. Mm-hmm. This, whole, this whole situation is a giant real estate deal for Broadway plan or whatever you want to call it, everything is going to go, I suspect, if this, uh, if this election goes the wrong way, whether it's Ken Sim or Kennedy Stewart, we're going to see the uh, rental situation drop uh, because the developers are just going to say, you know what, we're not doing it. Nobody has signed on to the rental protection plan in the private sector. No developer said we'll do it. They're all giving money to both Ken Sim and Kennedy Stewart. Alvin, we've got about uh, 40 seconds here. I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, Bill's answer to anything that's difficult is to say that we can't do it and that it's a fantasy. And I don't think that's the type of leadership that people need in our city. We need folks like Kennedy Stewart and Ford Vancouver who understand the urgency of the crisis that we're in and will actually do something about it. We used to be a city that built housing and welcomed people from all over the world, all across Canada, young people. And now we're a place where it's harder and harder to do that. Uh, We want to get back to that hopeful, open, welcoming city where people aren't worried about their rent, people aren't worried about their mortgage because we've got enough housing. We want to build a city where tenants aren't competing against other tenants. We want to build a city where landlords are competing with other landlords. That's what we're about. What would you say then when I have conversations with uh, TRAC or sometimes the Vancouver Tenants Union saying that uh, some of the protection plans that Mayor Kennedy Stewart has implemented are good, but not 
good enough. There needs to be more in terms of protecting renters. How do you balance trying to do what's right for renters versus trying to do what's right for landlords when it's, you know, you're never going to please both parties, Alvin? Well, that's why we're running on the strongest renter protections in Canada. We want to be able to uh, have renters have peace of mind, the same peace of mind as an owner. We've got a lot of buildings in the city that might need to be replaced. They might be unsafe. But renters need to know that they're going to be protected. And as Bill eloquently described our renter protection plan, we'll be able to move them. We'll be able to bring them back. And often their rent will be lower because we'll be building 20% below market rental. Bill thinks this is a fantasy. That's all well and good for him to say, but we know that we can do this. And what's more, we know that we have to do this. And under Kennedy Stewart and a Ford Together team, it will be the law. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for giving us some time here this morning. I think uh, it was it was great to hear from both of you. Uh, we have exactly one month left until the election. Certainly hope our listeners uh, took away some key lessons here this morning. Alvin, thank you so much for your time. Anytime. Bill, appreciate this as always. And of course, uh, best of luck to you both uh, heading into the election. Thanks, John. Still listening to unbelievable stuff. All right. There it is. It's Bill Thielman from Team Vancouver, Alvin Singh from uh, Forward Together Vancouver. And just a reminder, I keep saying it, but I want to really drill it into your head. One month away from the civic election, Saturday, October 15th. And welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. Hope you're doing well on a Wednesday. No, 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 no. Hold on. On a Thursday. Pardon me. Only got three and a half hours sleep. So it's still technically Wednesday in my mind. Uh, John Jang here with you filling in for Mike today. Now, you've probably experienced sticker shock before. Like when you went to buy concert tickets for your favorite singer and found out that it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. You probably did it, but it was obviously very annoying. These days... I think most of us would happily deal with sticker shock because the newer, more ominous payment shock, it's a lot worse. It's, in fact, impacting Canadians across the country. Just take a listen to what happened. Of course, you probably know this, but just to recap, the Bank of Canada with an announcement last week. The Bank of Canada has made another hike to its key interest rate today, raising the cost of lending by 75 basis points to 3.25%. And this marks the fifth time that the bank has raised the cost of borrowing so far this year. This is all in a bid to cool the economy and, of course, tame rampant levels of inflation. The move has an immediate impact on variable debt across the country, including variable rate mortgages, meaning some homeowners could be spending a lot more on their monthly mortgage bills. Announced just last week, of course, yet another increase on benchmark interest rates from the Bank of Canada. That move brings us to 3.25%. No signs of it slowing down. So what is the payment shock that I'm talking about? And how is it actually impacting families across Canada? Joining us with some answers and hopefully some tips is Rabina Ahmed-Hak, a personal finance expert and journalist. Good morning, Rabina. Good morning. Uh, It's been over a week since we heard that announcement, the Bank of Canada raising those interest rates. Payment shock might not be a term that everyone is familiar with. How would you best describe it? I... When interest rates go up, uh, usually the bank will email you or send you something in the mail to say either more of your payment is going towards interest, less towards principal, or your actual payment is going up because interest rates have gone up. Most banks now, their prime rate is well above prime. So for many Canadian families, over the last six months, their payments have risen, in some cases, hundreds of dollars for the month. Mm. And so, yeah, you could call that payment shock. I still kind of refer to it as sticker shock because you still get that sort of email that slaps (laughs) you in the face 
or that letter that gets you, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, what can I cut back to make these extra payments that I now have to come up with to, to deal with the higher interest costs? Fair enough. And I, I'm only laughing because I suppose at this point it's like potato, potato. Uh, you are absolutely right, though, because it's that initial impact when you see the dreaded figures that come through the email, your bill statement saying this is X and you have to pay. Uh, it's a number that's much higher than what Canadians are comfortable with. So let me get to the nitty gritty of this. Some experts are saying what we're seeing with inflation, with the rising interest rates, we are pushing people to a breaking point as they're now beginning to lean more heavily on credit cards and loans. Is that a trend that you also see happening right now? Yeah, so we're seeing mortgage debt rise. It's at a record high, and that was mostly because of the low interest rates that we uh, experienced throughout the beginning of the pandemic, the first two years. Uh, rates were slashed uh, three times in a row, emergency cuts, which brought uh, rates down to this, this level that no Canadians had ever seen before. And so they felt more encouraged to borrow. Um, so as those interest rates go up, that debt is getting more expensive if you chose a variable rate mortgage, for example. And for many, because we're feeling the pinch everywhere we go, whether it's the grocery store or the gas station or any household items, mm-hmm. uh, we're turning to our credit cards because we may not have cash on hand to pay for groceries, to pay for your kids' activities. And so you're thinking, okay, I'll put it on the credit card and I'll pay it off over time or I'll think about it when the, when the, when the bill comes through. And TransUnion and Equifax is showing that. Uh, that that data is showing that credit card debt is rising as, uh, along with um, mortgage debt, which we know has been rising for the last two and a half years. Now, the last time I ever had to apply for a student loan, I wasn't that concerned about interest rates. I didn't know what the word inflation really meant. I was just a kid. But student loans, do we see this impacting student loans or the way that uh, college and university students are handling their personal debt going into sometimes expensive programs upwards of tens of thousands of dollars? Right. You know, student debt right now, when you graduate from a four-year program uh, in Canada, is around $30,000. And so when you graduate, and it's been the same for a while, the first six months is interest-free, and then you are subject, that debt is subject to interest. Hmm. And as interest rates rise, it can also be impacted by that. A lot of students, what they'll do is they'll take, uh, borrow money maybe from their parents' home equity line of credit to pay that debt off. But then that home equity line of credit debt's going up because that's the first debt that's impacted. Any money you've borrowed at a line of credit, any money that's on the variable rate mortgage. And so your student debt that then becomes even more expensive, a time where most people are at the bottom of their salary. So they're only going to see their salaries rise. And maybe they're trying to build a life, uh, uh, buy a home, have a family, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're in conversation with Rabina Ahmed Haq, a personal finance expert, taking a bigger look at uh, rising inflation across Canada. The Bank of Canada last week, uh, again, increasing their benchmark interest rates, bringing us to 3.25%. Rabina, a lot of people struggling to find answers, but one question that I think many Canadians are beginning to ask, if they hadn't been already, what role can the government play in trying to maintain affordability across the network? So the government itself can't do much. And I think this is a misnomer that some people um, think that, you know, the government should step in and make life more affordable for Canadians. Really, um, the Bank of Canada is raising interest rates in order to bring inflation down. And so in the end, we're going to result in an economy that we can predict better. So when we go to the grocery store, the price of onions hasn't gone up 8 9%. The price of gas isn't going up 40, 40% year over year. 
but what the one way the government can make life more affordable for Canadians is more public transit and more affordable housing, especially in cities like Vancouver, where average rents are in the thousands for even a one-bedroom apartment. So that is an easy way that, uh, you know, on a federal or provincial or even municipal level, the governments can step in mm. and make life more affordable. But there's very little they can do when it comes to interest rates because that really is the mandate of the Bank of Canada. And what they're doing is they're watching what's happening uh, with, with inflation numbers, so the same basket of goods year over year. They, their mandate is to keep inflation in check between 2 and 3%. And one of the tools that they can do to, to make that happen is to raise our interest rates. Uh, Rabin, I'm also curious, have you seen perhaps companies or corporations taking advantage of what's happening with inflation and bringing in new fees or expenses that uh, the consumers have to deal with simply because they realize a lot of their other competitors are already increasing prices, so a company has an opportunity to do so, even if they don't necessarily have to. I'll give you one example. There's a telecommunications company in Canada. I'm not going to name names here, but one that has proposed or is at least humming and hawing at the idea of charging people more just to see your e-bill. Your e-bill, not a paper bill, but an e-bill. So how does that make sense? And this is the thing. This inflation creep is is really creeping into so many many parts of our lives. And that includes, you know, charging you all of a sudden to get a a paperless bill, which uh, was free before because that actually saves the company Mm -hmm. money. We're also seeing it in more and more places that are asking you to tip for things that you never had to tip for before, you know, for a takeaway coffee or just take away food in general, and now we're, 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 you know, they hand you the terminal, and the first thing they say is, would you like to add a tip? And you're thinking, well, I never tipped you before. Why is this now something that I have to pay for? The one thing that, and this is frustrating for me as a personal finance journalist, is that prices have gone up, but as inflation starts to normalize, as the price of, for example, gasoline starts to come down, right. it's not like those prices are coming down. They're just going to keep them at those elevated levels until, uh, you know, until a point where they can rise, raise them a little bit more, because now people have become used to them. <laughs> so why should they bring them down, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I get what you're saying. Like, at some point, you just become desensitized to the fact that prices are high, and you just come and shrug your shoulders and say, well, this is the reality now, living in 2022. But that's not what we want. A final question to you, Rabina, and I just wanted your perspective on this, because last week, Apple held its annual iPhone launch event, and they shocked, again, the whole world, as they usually do. But this company announced that they wouldn't raise U.S. prices on their new line of phones despite inflation and supply chain issues. Now, I realize you're not a tech journalist, but I thought this was interesting because is this just an example of a company that's extremely wealthy flexing their assets? Or do we see this as like a light at the end of the tunnel? For example, if people are saying like Apple is keeping prices low, maybe, just maybe, there is some hope to be had here. Okay, um, I am holding a phone in my hand that cost me $2,000 last year. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not sure uh, with tax. I mean, I think it was $1,800. I, I bought the brand new uh, iPhone 13 when it came out. I bought the bigger one because I do so much work on my phone. So I did, you know, upgrade it to a level that maybe not everybody would. But uh, I think it's because their prices are already... Uh, quite high. They gotcha. can afford. Yeah. They can afford to take that. Uh, they, they can afford to 
take that cut of, in profits uh, because they're already charging so much for their technology. Um, if you look at other examples, other phones are not as expensive, but because iPhone's got the market, Apple's got the market, you've always got those people that have to have the latest phone. And, um, and, and really, even the second-to-hand market for Apple iPhones and other Apple products is quite robust. If you, you want to go and sell it, mm-hmm. sell a, a device, You've got lots of people calling in order to, to, to buy it. So that's also attractive to a lot of people. They think, okay, well, I'll pay this much for it now, but next year when I upgrade, I can also get some value out of this purchase that I made. Oh, it's an excellent point, and I'm glad you made it. I mean, I miss the days of the old flip phones, to be honest, the good old Nokia bricks, those things would outlast probably both you and I. That's how reliable they were and quite affordable back in the day. Uh, I guess at this point, I'm just glad it's not a $4,000 phone. Uh, Rabina, yes. thanks so much for giving us some time and your insight into this really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. John Jang here with you filling in. Mike will be back with you next week. Got a question for you, and we will take uh, some calls here later in the hour. But the question to you now, how do you determine if a restaurant is excellent? Not just good, not just your favorite, not just your favorite because your buddy happens to work in the bar, gives you free drinks. I mean, really excellent, like the best of the best. Maybe you're like me and you refer to online sources, materials like Google reviews or Yelp, or maybe it's word of mouth and you just trust your best friend Steve or your best friend Helen because they have a better, stronger palate than you do. There's definitely one ranking system that is internationally significant, and the first Canadian version of the system was announced in Toronto on Tuesday. To speak more on the Michelin Star Guide and to see which Vancouver restaurants could find themselves in esteemed company when that's announced in the fall, we are joined by Nathan Cadell, editor-in-chief of bcbusiness.ca. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, John. Let's get right into it, my friend. Uh, we see Toronto a couple of days ago. They had this big press conference, this big announcement, really, this gala, if you will, the Michelin Tire Awards, uh, where they're you know, basically giving out all these star ratings to a bunch of uh, Toronto restaurants. Twelve of them got uh, a single Michelin star, which is still great. And then an additional restaurant got the coveted two-star rating. So before we get into Vancouver, Nathan, uh, what are your thoughts on the 13 restaurants that picked up a Michelin Award there in Toronto? Have you had the chance to try any of them? Uh, I haven't really. You know, I, I've been to Toronto a few times. I used to cover the uh, Toronto International Film Festival a mm-hmm. little bit. Uh, so I, I've been there a few times. Uh, didn't really get to to do that back in the day. Uh, I, I will say, I guess I was a little bit surprised by how many there were. Obviously, Toronto's a great culinary town, so maybe that shouldn't come as a huge surprise. But, but 13's quite a few. Um, you know, and, and, and I guess they kind of emphasized, which, again, maybe we shouldn't be surprised, the higher price point there, right? So I think most of them are around like 250 a person. I saw a study uh, that you're going to have to spend it to get into one of those spots, right, um, right. which <laughs> fair enough. Obviously, they're going for the highest of, of the high cuisine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, they all looked fantastic for sure, but it, it kind of makes you think about when you come to Vancouver, what that kind of translation might look like. 
Yeah, exactly. That's ex- uh, that's the whole reason we're having this conversation with you this morning. Uh, the Vancouver Michelin Star uh, Review, the guide, will be announced uh, this year in the fall. But we figured, mm-hmm. you know what, because of the Toronto announcement, let's do some theorizing. Let's look into the crystal ball here a little bit. Uh, you wrote an article back on the, uh, on the website, bcbusiness.ca, in July, sort of predicting which restaurants you think could get some Michelin Star looks. So let's start with your locks, the restaurants that yeah you think for sure you would put money on to get a Michelin star. <laughs> I would. I, I kind of, uh, you know, maybe they should have this live at BCLC, right? Like oh, <laughs> some odds on these. <laughs> um, yeah. So in, in the luck here, I, I sort of threw on, and, and this is in the summer, right? This was in uh, July. So mm-hmm. when the Michelin guide was first announced to be coming to Vancouver. So might be a little bit outdated, but I, I think most of it still holds. Um, I, I had St. Lawrence is kind of the the obvious one. Mm. Um, it's just kind of picked up so much in Vancouver, especially. It kind of always wins the culinary awards here. Uh, what JC Poirier is doing is absolutely fantastic. He's innovated kind of like in the kitchen and beyond with, uh, you know, the way that they're kind of serving there with uh, set menus and um reservations that you you know ha- you can't uh, change you're kind of mm. locked into it you have to pay a fee uh so i, I think he's doing fantastic work there and, and his team and i mean it came third in the list of canada's 100 best restaurants which is usually pretty toronto-centric as well right so <laughs> I, I i think that'll be that'll be a lock um another one i had boulevard uh classic seafood restaurant downtown Really, really great stuff there. Um, always turns out awards as well. I, I, I think that's definitely going to be one, especially when you figure that judges might put a bit of a seafood bent on it right. in Vancouver, right? Uh, and then, and then I had published on Maine, uh, which was crowned Canada's best restaurant at the uh, 100 best restaurants uh, that I previously mentioned. And and I think you know, since it's come into play, I, I think a couple of years ago, it's really swept pretty much everything it's been up against. Yeah, um, yeah. I published on Maine, and sorry to interrupt there, Nathan, but published on yeah. Maine. That one is is. Even I know that one uh, <laughs> as, as somebody who doesn't do a whole ton of like fine dining. Uh, published on mm-hmm. Maine, like I remember hearing about their big win, uh, like Canada's number one restaurant. Uh, I believe it was last year. Maybe it was actually earlier this summer. Pardon me. Um, so yeah. this is a restaurant that clearly has momentum on their side. Oh, totally. I, it's if you talk to anyone now, they're they're like, well, it's impossible to get a table there now, and it wasn't the case even before that Canada's best restaurant thing came out. Right. So it's really changed that. Um, and the room is just so well designed. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful in there. Um, just the highest end service, great food. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's a shoe in. Yeah, I think their cocktails have gotten a lot of love on uh, social media oh, yeah. as well. So uh, for those that, uh, you know, w- want to enjoy some of that experience, that's something to consider there as well. Uh, Nathan, let's also move on now to the restaurants you think should be in the running, but might not be those mm-hmm. automatic locks like we've previously mentioned here. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, we've got Hawksworth, obviously. Um, a couple of years ago, this would be a no-doubter, not even a question. Um David Hawksworth is really well-renowned here. Um, so I, I, I still think that's going to hold enough cachet. I still think they're doing enough there that, that it will get in. Um, partially, too, probably because it's of the legacy there. Um, you know, it, churning out good food for, for a long time now. Mm-hmm. used to sweep every restaurant award in Vancouver. So I, I, I think it'll be on there. And the wine program, especially, is kind of 
like the top of the top tier. And I, I think that'll, that'll be enough. Um, then I've also, I also put down Kisitanto, um, which I think is a very interesting blend of cuisines with the Italian Japanese kind of combination they've got going on there. Uh, another beautiful room, um, in, incredible service. And, yeah. and I think, uh, you know, the uniqueness on display there will, will be enough. And, um, and then I kind of, I cheated a little bit. I had uh, Masayoshi slash Tojo's just to kind of represent that there will be some sushi component, probably more than one now that I'm seeing the Toronto list of 12. Right. You'd expect there'll be a couple, right? Um, I think, you know, both of these are kind of like legends of Vancouver, these two guys. So I, Masayoshi and Tojo, I, I think at least one. Now I'm thinking probably both get on here. Yeah, I, I think you might be onto something saying that maybe it's both, though. I was surprised by how many sushi restaurants got uh, such Michelin love uh, looking at the mm. list out of Toronto. But, you know, Hidekazu Tojo, I had a chance to actually interview uh, Hidekazu oh, Tojo, nice. the legendary chef who, uh, depending mm. on who you want to have a conversation with, was either the creator of the California role or somebody who was inspired by the California yeah. role and made it more <laughs> popular here in Vancouver. But regardless... Clearly a, a man that has quite the legacy here in this city. Oh, totally. Yeah, we, um, so BC Business and Vancouver Magazine are owned by the same company. I do a lot of work for Vancouver Magazine as mm -hmm. well. Uh, Stacey McLaughlin wrote a tremendous article for us investigating uh, that, the California role and who it was started by, who it wasn't. Um, worth a read for sure if anyone yeah. wants to pick that up. It's, yeah. it's one of those great Vancouver lore, right? Like it's just totally. one of those things. Uh, but yeah. I, I think I'll definitely look into that, uh, the, the article that you mentioned. Uh, now, yeah, you Nathan, we, we got a few minutes here. We're in conversation with Nathan Cadell. He's the editor in chief of bcbusiness.ca uh, magazine. I highly recommend you check out uh, trying to just take a look at some of the Vancouver restaurants that could get Michelin love this year in the fall to the end of the list. And I think it's my personal favorite. Obviously, if the Michelin mm. stars in town, they've got to give Duffins Donuts some kind of love here, Nathan. I think I'm, <laughs> I totally agree with you. They won't get anything, of course, but there's got to be like a 24 hour category or like the, <laughs> the hidden gem category, if you will. Well, well, there, there really, really should be. Uh, we need something like that to recognize places like Duffins. Uh, they do, I guess Michelin does have a Bib Gourmand uh, little list that they do. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think that, uh, you know, that's supposed to reflect good value and good value. Right. Um, sorry, good quality and good value from restaurants. I, I think Duffins delivers that. I don't expect it to be on that list. But then again, you know, Duffins, what makes it different is how many other restaurants, even with a Michelin star to their name, how many restaurants have their own merch? and like a mix of Chinese food with fried chicken and donuts. Like that's just, that's one of a kind. Very few. Yeah. No, it, it, it's an absolute institution. Uh, I can't wait to see what the full list actually looks like when the announcement eventually comes down. Nathan, once, once that happens, we'll get you back on the, uh, on the station and on the show and we'll see uh, how you did and it sort of match your predictions to what eventually panned out. Yeah, hopefully I'm not uh, a lot poorer for it, but I should be okay. <laughs> uh, he is Nathan Cadell, the editor-in-chief of bcbusiness.ca. Thanks so much for this. Thanks so much, John. All right, and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. John Jang here with you filling in for Mike. I'll be back tomorrow as well. Mike returns on Monday. Right now, trying to essentially do the job of Michelin Star Guide. They won't drop the Vancouver Star Guide until the fall. But we thought, given that Toronto has just made their announcement on Tuesday, we know we're better than Toronto. I don't need to tell you that. But what is Vancouver's number one restaurant? Can we build consensus here today? Or at least can we hear what your pick would be? For that, let's uh, hit the open phone lines if you want to give us a call. 
star 9898 on your cell, 604-280-9898. Let's go to John in the North Shore. Hi, John. Hi there. Uh, I have two picks. So okay. if you want to talk steak, I'd say uh, Alisa in uh, Yale Town. Okay. It's a spectacular restaurant. Um, and then Tapas published in Vancouver, one best restaurant in Canada, and it was published. I'd agree with that one. They're, right. Uh, they're, what they do with food is, is uh, exciting and new, and uh, it's a really good eat. What would you say is the city of Vancouver's like iconic cuisine? Is it steak? Is it sushi? Is it a, a, like a West Coast blend? What do you think? I'm going to say seafood because when you bring up Toronto, we moved from Toronto to, to Vancouver, oh. and I'd say Toronto has amazing, amazing restaurants and lots of them. I would not say that about Vancouver. I don't think we have a lot of amazing restaurants. We have a select few of amazing restaurants. Okay, fair enough. Hey, John, thank you so much for giving us a call here today. Yeah, no All right. Uh, that was John in the North Shore. Let's try Anne in Langley giving us a call. Hi. Good morning, Anne. Hi, John. I would like to say the raving gamer in Langley. Oh, okay. Ken, Ken is a chef, and he is always creating little surprises. And by that, I mean nochi sautéed mm. in a Pepsi-Cola sauce, Ooh. teriyaki fried tofu, okay. a poke bowl that will blow your mind Mm -hmm. and the the excitement of this restaurant is you can also play board games while you're there and ken is always coming up with surprises so the menu is evolving he i had a charcuterie board on the weekend unbelievable and i appreciate the smaller places where you pleasantly surprised. Yeah, so so you're telling me there's board games, delicious food, and there's just a great ambiance. It's fun for the whole family is what you're saying. Oh, my God. Yeah, families, you'll find families, tables of 10 people packed in there just going crazy with the kids having fun. And the food <laughs> is phenomenal. I love hearing that. And thank you so much for giving us the call here today. Thank you. All right. Uh, I, you know, I love that. I, I wish I had more family left in the province. My folks are in Alberta. My sister's in Korea. There's there's only one Jang left. I mean, there's a whole bunch of Jangs out there, to be honest, but just one in my immediate family. Uh, let's try Ed in Vancouver. Hi. Good morning, Ed. Well, well, I have to say that my favorite, without a doubt, for many years is mm. Seasons in the Park. Oh. Queen Elizabeth. Yes. I was hoping somebody uh, would wanna, mention this I wanna say, yeah. I want to say it for one reason. The staff are just absolutely outstanding. Yeah. The beauty of it is outstanding. Oh, yeah. The quality of the food is always outstanding. Yes, sir. And I can tell you right now that it is the nicest place to take anybody from out of town because there's nothing replaces that in Canada. You're right. You're right, Ed, because the views as you're sitting there at Seasons in the Park and you're just looking out, like, it's just, it's it's unlike anything else. So I think it's an excellent pick. I was humming and hawing, like, what would be my pick? And I think I would agree with you, Ed. I think I'm with you in that Seasons in the Park should get some kind of a Michelin star love when the announcement comes in the fall. Thank you for the call, Ed. Thank you. All right. And we got uh, another call here. He's been waiting patiently. Let's go to Tony in Abbotsford. It's, uh, good morning, Tony. Good morning. Uh, my preferred, um, bar none, yeah. is Chapino's Vinoteca oh. and Mediterranean Cuisine. Yeah, yeah. You know Absolutely what? Absolutely, bar none. Pino, Chef Pino is the best chef in Canada. Mm-hmm. Every morning since he opened, every morning he goes and takes his own uh, his own ingredients, his own food, his yeah. own everything. Everything is absolutely fresh. 
cooked to your specifications and bar none. So for I you, Tony, for you, Tony, selection, yeah. Sorry, Tony, I was just going to say that for you, it's the process. You you care a lot about the quality in which Absolutely. the process is being taken care of. Yeah, that and makes sense. That makes sense. When he, he's, also, he's also very hands-on. I mean, he's not just a chef. He's very hands-on. Right. So his client comes, he, cares, he caters to you personally. I love it. Hey, thanks for the call here today, Tony. Thank you. You know, that's the one thing that AI will never replace. No drone could ever replace a excellent human chef. Let's bring in our technical producer of the program, Tim French. He's also quite the gourmand, if you ask me. Uh, Tim, if I put you on the spot right now and I asked you to name like your Michelin star restaurant in Vancouver, what, what's that going to be? Well, I've always been a sucker for good Indian food. Oh, and yeah. if you ask me, no place oh, in yeah. the world does Indian food mixed with like a pinch of North American influence mm-hmm. than Vidge's oh, on Canby. It is solid spectacular. So Vikram Vidge, of course, one of Canada's most renowned chefs and culinary experts. I mean, if Vidge's doesn't get a Michelin star by the time the Vancouver announcement comes, like what's the whole point of having one? Exactly. You've got to do it.